Hello and welcome to another episode of Transformational Blueprints, where we try to put a dent in the large number of transformation programs that fail. Hosted by me, Mario Michaels, founder and director of Synaxia Group. On this series, we will bring you unique insights drawn from first-hand experience from some of the most high-profile architecture and transformation leaders across the globe. Topics told in order to share knowledge, experiences and ideas to inspire, innovate and give back to the architecture community. So grab a coffee, sit back and relax. The question we will aim to answer today is one that I get on a daily basis, constantly being asked by chief architects and head of architects, how do I make that step up? What do I need to be able to be in a position to apply for that, that job or you know, I applied for the CIO role, but didn't have the experience for it. And they went with somebody who's already a CIO or a CTO. They were joined by three people that have made that jump. And um, to be honest, when I asked them uh, if they'd like to share their experience, all three of them jumped at the opportunity to share those experiences. Um, so, so, so without further ado, let me introduce you to our three panelists. So the first one, Dan Pass. Um, Dan is an engineer um, by trade who chose to want to own ultimate accountability in his organization because that's where he believes he can make a difference. Um, has, having risen through the ranks at Cable and Wireless, he then moved to Betfred to become their head of architecture. And it was at that point where Dan made the bold move to become a technical director. He then moved to what first up finance to become a CTO. And he's now the CTO of a disruptive challenger bank aiming to change the way that the UK mortgage industry works. Um, Dan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Perfect. So secondly, we've got Adam Cockburn. Adam is, like most of everybody on this call, driven by delivering technology-enabled solutions that customers want and, more importantly, that customers need. Um, he made the move... Uh, from Chief Architect to CIO at Plusnet, which is now owned by BT. Um, he made that move in 2020. His current role uh, in BT is leading EA operation, uh, leading an EA operations team and also um, leading a tribe within BT's largest ever transformation program. Uh, underpinning this is his core belief that great people, not product, well, not just products, are the key and the secret to success. So welcome, Adam. Thanks very much for joining me, mate. Leo has worked with major brands such as BP, Visa, Transport for London, Debenhams on technical strategy and go-to market planning. Um, software developer by trade, Leo made his first architect move at Experian where he was a software architect. He then moved into a consultancy role and then joined a startup which was in a bad way and in, it can only be described as a recovery CTO role, which he executed excellently. That business managed to sell to a French private equity firm um, and, he, and he exited it really, really well. Um, he's now the CTO of another startup, which aims to curb B2B utility spending. So welcome guys. Thank you very much for taking the time out um, today. Um, we really, really, really do appreciate uh, every, uh, your time, I suppose, and hopefully your future insights as well. So, without further ado, let's crack on with the questions. 
So the first question we've got, guys, is what skills do you consider to be transferable from the architecture role into the role of a CIO or a CTO? And more importantly, what are the gaps? Um, I think I'm going to start with you on this one, Dan, if that's all right. The architecture role, and I really enjoyed the time period I had. And the, but the benefit of architecture against the sort of CTO, CIO role is it's a, it's quite a singular discipline. Sure, you could, you could do solution, you could do data, you can do enterprise, but ultimately you know what your direction of travel is. And what I found as soon as I moved up to the next role was you don't quite realise how much other things now need to be need to be responsible for you might have had a small amount of leadership perhaps running an architecture group and even a good size one possibly in a massive enterprise but it doesn't really quite repair you for you suddenly pick up a huge amount of additional responsibility so what skills can you partake you've still got your engineering brain you've still got your standards brain you've still got your design brain you've still got your good practice brain you need to take those immediate strengths and take them into the role and then try and reapply that logic more broadly across the new set of responsibilities and accountabilities that you've just inherited and that can be quite tough because some of it is just going to be completely alien to you and it might take a, a takes time to adjust i suppose how how do you get that then how how you know you, you just said it, it's going to be quite tough and there's a lot of adjustment to make but obviously if you're not being given the opportunity to take on that responsibility when you're not doing the role how would you propose somebody goes and asks for that so i it depends on your organization the one i was in there was no room for maneuver the technical director was the limit what the role was going to be for for me and for fred the only option of choice I had was to was to look around and apply and I applied for roles. And what I looked at were organizations that were quite small and that effectively they would be able to look at you and categorize you as, OK, we need a bit of a hands on person or a semi hands on person. They're not looking necessarily for a died in the world experience CTO comes from a FTSE 100 who's going to want to grow a team. You actually find those small, medium sized enterprises that have just decided, actually, we've had a head of IT for a while, but we now want a technology leader. You can bring your that really solid architecture and engineering background and give them that initial confidence while you learn the wrestler ropes that come with it. And I found for me, that was my initial jump. That was how I got it. I think some organizations will promote people into those roles once they've sort of gone up, gone up and they've identified that person's got that feeling. If you're lucky enough to have a really good relationship with someone in your exec team, you could absolutely go to them and go, we know this role is empty. The world's changing everyone's going digital you can give a narrative perhaps or structure something that says it but ultimately to actually consider it it's going to be a combination of luck and being a bit bullish and asking and if necessary taking a different step and going somewhere else it's much smaller organization cutting your teeth in a different way but just bringing you already huge amount of skill and capability and then reapplying it and then the rest you'll learn as you go along uh, and because you don't apply, you don't know if you're going to get rejected. So apply. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, and what, what are your thoughts on this then, Adam? I suppose you, you might come at this from a different perspective or slightly different perspective. Yeah, I, I think so. I think the, the important part is the point you made about being a leader. So I think it, it's really about your personal appetite to show your leadership footprint and to broaden that footprint 
and you'll all get opportunities. You may not recognize them as opportunities in your current role to broaden that footprint. So you take on a little bit more responsibility. You, you lean into a space that maybe no, might not be yours in your current role, but actually your business needs has that gap and you can fill it. And there'll be those opportunities everywhere. So I think for me, um, I think if you're sat in a role and you aspire to a bigger role in this space, look for those small gaps and don't be afraid to fill it, but then think about how you fill it. You know, it's it's not about ego. It's about collaboration. It's about partnership and just broadening their experience. And don't be afraid to to lean into a space that you've never been in before, because generally people want you to su succeed. Okay, fair enough. So pe people, um, absolutely. Okay, and what about and what about you, Khalil? Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I would agree with uh, everything both panelists already said, but also. I think um, the architecture role itself is um, uniquely geared to prepare you for this type of work because it teaches you to zoom out and not just focus on the tech itself, but where it sits and what it needs to actually do in terms of business. And that's the key. You need to learn to zoom out and think at a business level and how to interact with business leaders, with tech leaders. And um, one of the I think most valuable skills you can gain to enable you to kind of perform the job well is explaining technical things to non-technical people. And that is a key part of the CTO or CIO role and also key to architecture in some organizations. So I would say be ambitious, try to get exposure to clients, get exposure to other stakeholders, et cetera, within your organization, within your architecture role. But if that's not afforded to you, also be ambitious and look for other types of roles. I mean, um, like you mentioned, I moved to the agency and like consultancy space as well, specifically to get more interaction with C-level executives in kind of other organizations, like you mentioned, uh, for example, BP, TFL and Visa, and learn how to work with these individuals in order to broaden kind of my strategic tech and, and business knowledge. And, and that's a key. And you, you really need to always push yourself, always be ambitious, try to build up your skills even outside work. Because at the end of the day, um, it's only the most driven people that kind of end up in these uh, CTO, CIO roles, because you have to be very comfortable doing things that are initially outside your comfort zone. Okay. And the more you get used to that, the, the easier you'll find transitioning into a role like this is. So, and would you say that move to consultancy, when you made that move to the app business, I think was mm -hmm. the first one that you did, yeah. did that benefit, did the experience you gained in that role benefit you uh, more so than if you stayed, let's say, with the end client or with the end user for your current role as CTO? A hundred percent. I mean, I did get uh, to do a lot of uh, stakeholder management and and kind of wider business stuff at Experian, but not at the level that you do when you're dealing with clients directly, when you're doing innovation workshops, when you're trying to really figure out their problems and solve their problems. Okay. And it'll also build your analytical skills as well. So I, I found it extremely valuable. Okay, perfect. And, and, and I don't know, I'm going to come to you next on this one because it, it, it kind of piggybacks off, off your answer, off your first, uh, the first question. So, um, the, the question I've got is, um, being a strong IT leader requires the ability to build relationships, obviously, and connections with people inside and outside the organization. 
is there anybody or would you not necessarily anybody person-wise but is there any particular um, role that you believe um, you should be building a relationship with that will help springboard you into that number one technology role? Yeah, it, it's a great question because I think um, as a senior architect, you may have a team reporting to you. You might have peers within the technology organization, which, you know, you've got to make the most of those as a leader. But actually stepping up, you've got to punch out of the technology organization. You've got to be recognized as a business leader. So the, the, the three kind of areas I typical, typically gravitate towards is, is um, operations, whether that's customer operations, supply chain operations, you know, whatever business you're in, you know, where's the sharp end? Where's the pain? Where's the opportunity? Partnering in that space is, is, is really important. I think the other key role is, is, is who's in charge of transforming the business, not the technology. Actually, you know, you, you can build a great partnership there and a great alliance um, and actually, that's always people and relationship driven as well. And, and that will help you both broaden your expertise, but also um, there's a lot of new skills you've got to um, kind of bring to, to bear in that space. Um, and it's a learning opportunity for people who might have been within that technical architecture role to actually also make a difference for the business. The last one, and this might just be me, but the last one is also finance, because wherever you look at it, if you want to be C-suite, You've got to tangle with a PL. You've got to tangle with finance, with budgeting. Uh, you've got to work out whether all of that tech you want to buy is going to kill the PL. Um, and so, actually, the critical part then is also um, partnering with the CFO, the finance directors, and you've got to get under the skin of actually how do you pay for what you've got? How do you create the gaps? But also, are there some challenges in the PL that you can help with? And you don't need to already have made that step up to be that one person at the table to do that you could start that now and there's, they, a, there's, a, there's a thought i'm just going to comment on that and you're right and, and adam said it is there's a the often when you've moved from a role such as architecture or, or head of it or an it director you remember you treat your team as your as the as your direct reports and i, I kind of hate the phrase direct reports because it always makes our you know hierarchy still a sort of subject we try and avoid these days to so say you know organizations are kind of flat but if you look at it from a material level you say um the it team and me we are a we're a collective when you move into the c-suite you've got to almost realize and it didn't click with me immediately and it, it takes a second or two is hang on the c-suite and now my team actually so they're your counterparts so you're right you absolutely need to be best friends with the cfo if you're very very marketing driven you and the cmo need to be practically joined at the hip if you've got a heavy regulatory environment your head of regulatory affairs your chief risk officer they are the people that you need to start getting super sort of uh, really really close to and understand their pain points as much as adam said while trying to remember not to ignore the fact that everybody else in your organization may well have something that's caused that, that they need assistance with, and then they're going to look to you as the ultimate accountable person to hopefully solve that problem. It's a much broader, bigger balance when your team dynamic changes so dramatically. And the first time you sit around that table and go, hang on, my team now is everybody from the CEO, the CFO, and the, the commercial guy to the marketing person. And it's, it just, it's a, it can be quite a jarring moment. It's a little mm -hmm. bit like when you're a hands-on engineer, and you move to architecture and you you never log into a CLI again in your <laughs> life. That transition, which well, you will have all done, can be quite kind of, oh, yeah, but I could just fix that, but I can't because I don't have access anymore. It's the same again 
And it goes back to Khalil's part about being suddenly 50,000 feet up, but in a much different way. But what happens yeah. with the relationship with your team then? Because clearly you, 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 you're still um, leading that team, of course, and you, you, you've still got to get their buying as well. But if, if, you, if you go from backing them in everything that they want to do and having that sort of those challenging conversations with the board about technology to actually I'm now on the board side. How doesn't change. It, does, it doesn't change. How does that work? You can't let that change. You still have to represent mm -hmm. them. You're still, uh, if you want to be a successful leader and a people leader, you've fundamentally got to still, you can't stop caring about everyone's day, yeah. everyone's role. If you are, if you start to try and become too abstract from it because oh, I've moved into the C-suite, so this stuff doesn't matter so much anymore. I've got a head of service and a head of data and a thingy that's going to do all that. As soon as you stop remembering what it's like to do, to do a tough technical job on a day-to-day -day basis, then unfortunately that transition has failed in my yeah, world. Exactly. You've got to care so much about it. If anything, you've got to be more acutely aware of it because you've got that one chance to explain to the board where that, that investment you want to make or the strategic shift that you've been dying to do that you've now got that opportunity to sell. And that goes back to the, as Adam said, selling things to people and almost becoming a, a, a marketeer for the, the technology as a whole and how it's going to give the business what it needs. It, it amplifies that. And it's you suddenly go from, well, I could just sell architecture all day long to, oh, hang on, I've got to sell an entire concept now mm. you know i've got that chance and sometimes you don't get a lot of opportunity to do it you sort of step in the door and day two it's like right so how do you think we're going to solve all these problems then <laughs> new person yeah, i think and, uh, and, and and oh sorry <laughs> no go on khalil i was just going to say i wouldn't even separate between c-suite and your team because um the key is that everyone needs to be pushing in the same direction and if people on your team don't mm. know why they need to be pushing in that direction that's a failure on your part uh, yes. a, a big part of the, this job is communication, communication upwards, downwards, sideways. You need to know your team, understand what drives them and be able to motivate them and, and explain why you're doing specific things. I think buy-in is key to have a strong team and, and, a, and a mature team. Um, so, uh, and, and also part of your role as the CTO is to spot gaps so like, like Dan was saying, um, even at, this, in, at the C-suite level, for example, when I joined, uh, when, when we built up utility post-funding, um, we did not have a head of product. Product fell under me. And I actually thought that was quite a big gap because of how much product work we do. And I, the kind of product owner that I had brought in, I uh, promoted to a chief product officer. And, and he's doing a fantastic job now. And, you know, I have one less thing to worry about. Obviously, we have to work very closely together. As Dan mentioned, the entire C-suite needs to be working very closely. But you need to also have, um, not have the, a lot of ego. Be aware of when you need to step back and, and, and delegate to other people. Okay, fair enough. Um, so, so, so moving on to the next question then. Um, you're recruiting, let's say all of you are leaving your current roles, uh, wherever you are, respectively. You're leaving your CIO, CTO roles. Um, most businesses will ask for a number of years of experience in a CIO, CTO role. What advice would you give to get that first C-suite role outside of your existing company? Um, Khalil, do you want to start with this one? Sure. I mean, for me, um, the path was clear because uh, in an established company, 
they always need previous proven track record in a C role to, 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 to get you. So I was specifically looking at startups because startups will consider your achievements and your skills before you know, other C role experience. And I think uh, one good way to do this gradually, if you want to do it gradually, is engage with accelerators, places like Founders Factory, for example, who are always looking for hands-on senior engineers who will then, or senior architects who will then step into a CTO role as the company grows. That's one kind of easier avenue, I think, to, for your first yep. uh, role, and, and you learn on the job as well. Otherwise, you just have to get really lucky and impress the right people at the interview stage as well. Fair enough, fair enough. Dan, anything you'd like to add to that? Um, yeah, I, I think Cleo kind of says it, says it quite fairly. My view was is I got to know people who were placing senior leaders inside new and emerging businesses or businesses who are going through a significant transformation and then use them to help craft a pitch around the fact that you don't have the experience but that experience doesn't matter because what they're trying to achieve is grow their organization and change and grow and someone who can grow with it not someone who's going to come in with very predetermined ideas we must do it that way i've always built my organization that way almost somebody who could be molded and with the organization as it changes there's a there's a plus and a negative to that because some organizations that's a fabulous thing and they'll do that but obviously then you've also got to try and remember to kick yourself and go, hang on, some of the stuff I know actually is quite important, but I also do need to leave some of my preconceptions behind and roll with the flow of the organization a little bit more. And that's, it's that balance that can be quite difficult to strike. And then of course, when you go to your next role, when you've suddenly got the experience, you need to better go, I've got the experience, but actually I'm not complacent. I'm still prepared to learn and I'm gonna, I know what's good, but also I'm prepared to listen in case it's got a little old or a little bit aged both yeah. in operating style technology choices the way you approach communicating with people and and all the bits that adam and khalil so fantastically mentioned and sort of articulated okay and and adam i'm going to come to you on this one then so you landed your first cio role at Plusnet. um what did what was your target for your first hundred we all do 100 day plans right what was what was yours and how how did you measure the success of that transition to a CIO? Yeah, so, yeah that's a great question. And I think um, a con context is important. So when I joined PlusNet a little over three years ago, uh, I, I said to the CIO who was recruiting me that I wanted his job ultimately. So right from the outset, I was very clear that that was the progression path. You know, uh, and, you know, I held my hands up and said, I've never done it before, but that's where I'd like to be. Um, and so I made it very clear that that's where I wanted. So I think between us, there was a development plan and broadening. And, you know, I had to step up and do a lot through that. But I actually got the opportunity last February to do that. Um, my um, CIO hadn't been well for a while and kind of dropped off. And I was almost doing the job for a couple of months. But when I formally got the job, my first uh, decision was to send um, everybody home as a result of the pandemic. So I took up CIO in a high um, stress, um, high uncertainty environment, and I had to really, really um, hit the ground running. So all of those best laid plans of, you know, what my first hundred days was going to be in this CIO role I aspired to were all ripped up because what I had to do is I had to lead a team 
yeah. in a very uncertain time. I had a lot of people who were scared, but PlusNet provided broadband and mobile services to one and a half million customers. We couldn't let them down at a time yeah. of pandemic. I was new to the role. Um, and uh, the business was also going through an integration into BT. So um, for me, my first 100 days was all about the people. It was all about stability. What I had to do was make myself very visible. I needed to make sure that everybody knew that I was taking all of the concerns into account. But most importantly, we were going to stand up and be counted to make sure not only did the individuals who worked for me, but the wider business, they would get the technology they needed, but our customers would continue to get the technology needed as we entered into lockdown, that first lockdown in the pandemic. Um, and it was really sitting down with, with my new management team, but also my new peer management team. So not only my technology team, but also the, the, the C-suite to, to, to lay out the critical parts of that and then create the metrics that say, well, this is what good looks like. And to a certain extent, um, also agree a contract whereby there are now no rules. And what we're going to do is work very closely together and very and in a very responsive way to respond to the challenges and pressures. And, you know, touch wood so far, um, you know, that's a bit of a lasting legacy. We did very well. And that, that, that surely has got to be in, in sort of the top couple of percent of challenges that you've had in your uh, in your career. You know, not only do you you're making a, a big step up in terms of a transition to a number one IT role, you've also then got to deal with a you know the biggest pandemic since the 40s um that the world's ever had to deal with how how do you what what hurdles do you think you're going to be facing in a post-covid world with that then adam yeah so i i think um we've we've talked a lot about new normal um which is what does the work pattern look like what does the world look like we're not even sure what a a route to normal looks like or what that normal looks like but I think the thing to really anchor on is the fact that at the core of this is, is great people, people who have personal lives, people who work lives, and they're the ones that make things happen for customers. So it really is taking a very people centric approach as we go through each of these kind of phases, these gates. Um, but also, I think there's a huge opportunity for innovation. And this is where I think everybody on this call it could create opportunities to take that next step, to, to, to kind of be brave and lead that innovation on behalf of people that maybe you don't normally lead things on behalf of, show that leadership footprint. So I, I would say very much moving to a new normal when it's highly uncertain, we don't know, and collaborating and co-creating what that looks like, but also kind of stepping up as a leader to help get us there. Okay, and what and what about you, Dan? What 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 what's your thoughts on post-COVID hurdles? What what's the biggest one that you're facing at the moment and foresee um, facing? I'm building it. I'm building a bank in the middle of a pandemic with an organisation that's where everyone is traditionally used to operating out of a small office in London. We're now 45 people. That's and then what we are now calling us is a fully distributed team. We have everybody from two people who are still in Australia because they went there in the pandemic and actually it's still not really convenient for them to come back. People are in Europe, we've got people dotted all around the country, some who are going to move, we're not going to, we've almost had to pivot a, a sort of a part of our operating model to make it applicable to what this new world is going to be. And then what we're trying to do now is find the advantage. So the actual advantage is you can hire me, a CTO, to work for a London-based organisation and I don't have to move to London, I can still live in the Northwest. Because of that, that means we're, we've completely had to rethink whole aspects of that, of that business model, represent it to the regulator, to auditors, and try and 
get them into the mindset of, okay, this is how our business operates. This is the benefit for our customers by being like this and what operational resilience and capability it gives us, what, de what our decentralized operating state actually means. And once we started to do that, this almost, like, this almost becomes a little bit part of the product narrative to a degree, and it's all part of our ethos. But we're, we're having to embed a brand new culture into a startup that was already just trying to formulate that prior to the pandemic. I was here quite late entry and I only came into them in October, which means I actually joined them at that sort of that middle period before we went back into lockdown. It's, it's all about the new operating model. It's all about being distributed. It's about the work-life balance. It's about building something where you used to just throw everybody in a room and collaborate and you'd all do a whiteboard and then go to the pub. Those, those, those experiences are lost and yep. we need to find new ways to recreate them to, to kind of encourage people to feel excited about it and again if you're a technology leader i need to try and get around so everybody i can in our organization to check in and go hey how's it going yeah um anything you need help with what can my welcome organization to do you know we're running a big program we're doing this we're doing that but we also just need to be part of that we need to be as, as part of the the well-being element and the personal element as much as possible and if someone's struggling we've got to have that little bit more focus around their user experience than we might have done because you can't just go, all right, they'll just get in the office and just plug a cable and it'll be fine. We've actually got to have a little bit more conscious effort around it. And you know, because they may be more stressed than normal before you throw this monster thing in the mix at the same time. Okay, fair enough. And, and Khalil, we, we, we've spoken about this at length, I suppose, but how have you, everybody or most people, um, have to tackle the usual imposter syndrome how did you approach that um sure uh just to kind of step back one second as well about the kind of the new normal post-covid i think one thing no one can expect to do is go back exactly how it was before mm -hmm. i yep. mean even me with a local team uh that who, that's mostly london based we are still potentially going to be very flexible in our working and it'll be good to have everyone in the same room for whiteboarding, et cetera. But I think doing two to three days from home is going to be the new normal for a while. Um, sorry, just to jump onto your... Uh, other no, enough. Yeah. Uh, imposter syndrome is something that I view as being very healthy. I think if you're in a leadership position, especially a C-suite leadership position, and you don't have some imposter syndrome, then you are probably not aware of all of your responsibilities and the risks of what you're doing. Okay. Um, I think it comes from actually understanding the position and understanding that it, there's going to be a lot of things out of your comfort zone. You're going to have to learn a lot of things very quickly, but hopefully, you know, you've been an architect, you've been kind of, you're used to learning new things on the job and rolling okay. with it. And, and that's an attitude and skills that you, you need to take with you. And just don't let imposter syndrome cripple you. Always have confidence in what you're doing and your decisions. But it's always also good to question what you're doing. Step back, uh, reevaluate. You know, and, and um, you need a, also a kind of a support mechanism. So um, I, I have a big uh, network of kind of uh, tech leaders, CTOs, etc that I can throw questions to, that I can, you know, go have meetups with, et cetera. I think your peers are going to be a um, big element in kind of helping you work through things that others have, you know, problems that others have faced before that yeah. perhaps you haven't. Okay, fair enough. Cool, so what we're gonna do, um, 
now then is move on to a bit of a Q&A and then we're going to wrap up the whole session with a couple of um, takeaway points, um, if possible. So I think those takeaway points will probably come out of uh, the Q&A session anyway. So um, first question I have, I'm going to direct this one at, at you, Adam, um, if possible. Do you still think there's a perception that chief architects are very much still in their ivory tower and that C-suites prefer people with delivery-based track records as CIOs? Um, yes, there's no, there's no avoiding that. That is out there. That is everywhere. Um, and you could spend hours worrying about why and railing against it. But I think the thing we need to think about is that just because that's perception doesn't mean that is how you have to be as a chief architect. Um, I think in battling that, I made sure that I sometimes zigged when I should have zagged in my career choices to take more of a delivery role. Yeah. And what that meant is at PlusNet, when I said I wanted the CIO role, um, when I was engaging with the organization, I spent as much time with the head of engineering or the head of infrastructure or the head of um, security in terms of how we partner and do things together. And they saw that I could demonstrate delivery experience and a delivery mindset, which meant that that partner was stronger and richer, but it also meant I could challenge them on their terms. Yeah. So I think we need to think about the chief architect. What are you there, uh, there for? You're not there to roll out slide packs and ideas. You're there to drive outcomes. And I think sometimes some of the outcomes we champion are, 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 are they're very big. They take a, a big step of imagination. And I think what we need to do uh, is really think about, well, how do I make them real? Well, I'm going to have to think about delivery. So for me, I think organizations much more want architecture leads who can make it happen. And that will mean moving into delivery, but that doesn't mean the chief architecture architect role is any less valuable. It's as, valu as valuable now as ever. I suppose that really links into the way the world that we're in as well. You know, most businesses now see themselves as technology businesses. We're moving into more of a product-led environment. So naturally, the person who needs to go and make that sort of stuff happen is the chief architect by being that sort of li liaison between what the customer needs and what the business can build, I suppose. So that that, that would make sense. I think and, and one thing that can sell you as well into the C-suite as a chief architect is having that breadth and depth of knowledge of the tech and scaling the tech. And what I mean by that is, you know, part of your job as the C-suite is optimizing costs. And often if you're, for example, taking on a CTO role at a startup, like we've been mentioning, things will have done, been done very inefficiently before you joined, because it's either been an MVP built by an external agency, etc. When I joined Utility, within the first three months, I cut the running cost of our platform by 70% with, while losing no performance because of my previous architecture experience and the knowledge of how to deploy things in the cloud and, you know, fixed costs over a, a long time. And not having those implementation details, those strategic tech experience wouldn't have enabled me to do that. Okay. And, and, and Dan, I'm going to come to you because I'm conscious I want to get as, through as many questions as we sure. can. Um, so, we, we, we've discussed quite a lot about getting across the business and getting buy-in and, uh, and whatnot. How do you go about gaining buy-in to be successful and how soon does that need to be realised? We mentioned it earlier. Everybody's going to have their own approach. 
what you've got to look at is you've got to look at the your organization at a really holistic level um in some respects you have to know the key players so who are the people with influence and it may not necessarily be all the the people who sit around the c-suite table when you're in that immediate position first thing to do is to understand the problem and get under the skin and get into the hearts and minds of people in the organization and then look at the c-suite and then say do they share a common view and how do you get into that middle ground with them and then start upselling and giving them that narrative you've almost got to create a story around it you can't go in and go um, i want 15 million quid and i want an 18 month program and i want to do this and it's all these magical things if you haven't got a really deep under the skin of the organization's challenges whether it be the product the marketplace the channel that it's in its ambitions its public pr position suddenly you're you're in a position where you can dramatically influence what every almost every mechanical part of the business to a degree because you've got access to it but you've got to get the personalities right and you've got to really truly understand the problems and i'm not saying architects don't understand the yeah. problem other engineering roles do but you may have only had a subset of it it's not until you literally do we said it sit with the cfo who's like i just need to i need to get this under control there's too much spend in this space we've got too much risk here to then go with the chief marketing offer who says I never have enough money and my campaigns aren't successful. I need technology to be smarter. Yep. Um, or I just need more money. So actually, you're going to come around to the, almost the same common topics. And then I want to rock up and go, give me a load of cash to solve all of your problems. Yep. The, the narrative needs to encapsulate that. And you always need to direct it based off their personality types. So yep. if your CFO is very sort of fact, 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 don't walk in there and give them a dreamy PowerPoint presentation for 30 slides. Go in there and give them four that go fact, fact, fact requirement. That's it. And it is going to be more than ever about their personality and their people part. Um, and the technology doesn't, it should never take a second place. But being realistic, you might find it's 20% of your job for yeah. a very long time. And you may just want those tiny little snippets of time where you actually get to do some technology. And that's the kind of my, my final take on it. The one thing is, so many people want this role. But you've got to seriously do the research and decide. And so you said, what do I need to do to prepare? Part of your preparation is to decide in your mind if this is the role you actually want. It's sitting at the panacea at the very top is a massively empowering experience. And that level of influence and that level of accountability, if that's what you believe in, and that's the only thing you're going to create influence is fantastic. But for some people, it's a living nightmare. You might do the role for two years and go, I really don't like managing people and PL and I hate board packs and I hate investor calls and I'm really struggling with the marketing stuff. And actually, I just want to go back to where I created solutions to problems from an engineering and an architecture perspective. And you may actually find yourself that you may detest the role. So yeah. do the one thing I'll say is think panels like this are useful because honestly, we've been there. I, I would never go back. But at the same point, I would say to anybody, just be really sure you want it because you are possibly the last decision maker now. And you may have to make one critical decision very early on and back the living hell out of it, as, as certainly as, as Adam did, where he said, right, we need to send everybody home. And suddenly we've got to pivot our entire working structure in the middle of a pandemic on day two. Yeah. Previously, as an architect, you're part of that. And, but I, even if you've got a massive team around you who've all supported you and helped you with it, ultimately someone still said, so are we doing this or not? Your yeah. decision. And that first time you need to make that decision and then back it and realise that ultimately it's, it could all fall to you, because it will. Okay. Ultimately, you're, and everybody around you is going to look at you for that. That's the bit that some people just, yeah, you're not going to enjoy. And that's why you've got to be really sure this is the right thing for you, because it, it can have a downside, <laughs> definitely. Okay. 
Uh, and, I and you don't do a lot of actual tech. <laughs> so if yeah. that's your passion, really, you're, you're just not going to be doing a lot of it. Yeah. And that leads me nicely on to you then, then Khalil. From, from, you know, if you add your time again um, back into your chief architect, your head of architect role, what would you do differently then to best prepare you for your C CTO role now? So uh, to, to, to all sort of um, attendees of this um, webinar, what's your key takeaway that you'd like them to take away from this? Honestly, I, I think I, I, I will actually talk about what I have done because yep. I think what I did to prepare was actually quite effective. And that is get as much exposure as you can to external clients, to external parties, and to C-level uh, people, directors, etc., and just learn how to sell them ideas, learn yeah. what they're concerned about, learn what they have to juggle in order to get decisions made or in order to make decisions, because that part is you know, completely isolated from the tech aspect of things and is where most people are taken by surprise when they jump into these strategic roles. And the more you can get exposure to that side of things kind of earlier on before you have, you're kind of the ultimate person responsible for a decision, um, it gives you a bit of a leeway to, you know, experiment with communication styles, experiment yeah. with how to deal with these people. Okay. Um, so, you know, I'm aware that not everyone may have that opportunity within their jobs, but even if you don't, there are kind of peripheral ways to do it. You know, you can always kind of join discussion groups, etc., go to events and actually just network. I think people undervalue uh, just reaching out to people and networking and having chats with them and how much yeah. these people will remember you in the future as well and help you out. Very good. And Adam, what's your what's your key takeaway? Yeah, I, I think I'll cheat a little bit. And there's a couple of key takeaways. I think um, the no, first one is... <laughs> efficient. Yeah, but that's just being efficient. That's yeah. also part of the role, buddy. That's just... That's yeah. part of <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Um, so I think for me, I'd invest more in that leadership presence, you know, um, understanding more about why people follow you as a leader rather than just do what they say you do. I think... Um, it's something I've had to learn at pace, at speed, and some of the things might have been less painful if I'd invested a little bit more more time recognizing um, how I act as a leader. I guess the other thing is all about how you add the breadth, and I think I would have taken a few more risks, I think. Um, one of my old CEOs tell, tell me is when they're looking at a CV and somebody's applying to something like a, a CIO, what are they looking for? They're not always looking for somebody with their experience. Yeah. They're looking to see if somebody's taken a risk because they want to take a risk in someone who's um, taken risks. And, you know, largely it's been successful. So I think the other thing I would have probably done, taken a bit more risks, and, I, and I, I'd encourage everybody on this panel who aspires to this to really think about, are they taking those calculated risks to test themselves and get themselves to that, that role that they aspire to? Okay, perfect. Okay, so we've got three key takeaways there, there now. Conscious, we're sort of a, a few minutes over time, so um, kind of want to wrap this up. And finally, um, chaps, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you very, very much for firstly taking the time out, but secondly, for being so open and sharing your experiences with us. I think I'm deeply passionate about giving back to the, the tech ecosystem, as I like to call it, and it's people like you guys that make that sort of stuff happen. 
Very good. All right, then, guys. Thank you very much. Really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks for hosting. Thanks, Thanks everyone. For day. Thank Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Awesome to see you. Thank you, guys. Bye. Thanks, everyone. And that's a wrap. Sadly, we're at the end of another Transformational Blueprints episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and there were plenty of golden nuggets for you to take away. If you're a fan of the show, please do remember to share, like and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these too. Please also follow Synaxia Group on LinkedIn to keep up to date with new episodes. Links in the show notes. Join us next time for another episode packed with tips and advice from senior leaders in the technology world.